0: Following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series.
1: The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome everyone. Looks like a few new people here. So just to remind us all, um, I've been giving a series of talks since. Uh, late January on integrating practice into daily life or practicing with our daily life so we don't think about our spiritual path as just consisting of the 15 minutes or 30 minutes or 45 minutes a day that we're able to do meditation practice but instead having a, a way of using the whole life the whole waking life at least for practice And so just to review, I mentioned a long time ago that one very simple strategy that we can all work with is in daily life, just slowing down and softening the heart as a way of practice. So this would be an actual practice to be remembered as often as we can, to just slow down a little bit and to soften a little bit and just to notice how It changes our way of being or relating in that experience and we just learn a lot more in a a sense we're present in a way that we're not present when we're rushing or hard you know defended that's what I mean by hard the opposite of soft so I'm not going to spend time on that just as a reminder that we've talked about that in the past another strategy we talked about in terms of integrating practice in daily life is just to remember the possibility of being free. And I know it sounds a little silly, but mostly we go through life with this very strong assumption that I'm a suffering being. And so we could just practice, use our imagination or use a a sense of um, kind of innocence and just play with the idea that I'm already happy this is already okay. I can be content with this body, this mind, the conditions of this moment. To just play with the assumption that it's already okay, that happiness or salvation isn't something that I'm um, expecting down the road, but perhaps there's freedom or ease or however you wanna imagine this sort of end, maybe the end of spiritual practice is already here. So that's a practice. It's not something to believe in, but just something to, to look or to reflect on. Is can this heart be happy or content now? Or what would that look like to be at ease and content given the particular conditions of the moment? So that's a training that we talked about a couple maybe almost a month and a half ago. And then, for, a long, for the last uh, number of weeks, we've been doing this third strategy, uh, looking at the five precepts the Buddha gave for lay people. These are a way of training in living harmoniously, having harmonious relationships with our, you know, with our intimate partners, with our friends, with our community, with our families, as a practice, a, a daily life practice. Because not only does it lead to direct happiness having harmonious relationships, but it also brings up it also sets emotion a lot of insight. Like if I have this intention to have an intimate partner and not harm her or him, then all of my tendencies to harm him or her get illuminated. You know. So if I have that intention to be harmonious, to be kind, to be patient then I get to see all my impulses to be impatient, to be unkind, to be judging. So we looked at most of the precepts already, the five precepts the Buddha gave for lay people, undertaking the training to refrain from harming living beings or killing living beings, undertaking the training to refrain from stealing or from taking things that aren't freely given, undertaking the training to refrain from sexual misconduct, undertaking the training to refrain from false and harmful speech and what we'll talk about tonight is undertaking the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants or if you want the use of intoxicants or if you like how Thich Nhat Hanh has uh, sort of holds it and I had copies a number of weeks ago of Thich Nhat Hanh he's a well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk pretty famous in the West and uh, I have copies. I think I have them here tonight, too, if you didn't get one in the past. Just his comments on each of these five Buddhist precepts that you can take home with you if you're interested. That the way he works with this fifth precept is he expands it to include uh, all areas of consumption. So we're not consuming anything in a way that clouds or dulls the mind. right? Because there are a number of ways we can dull the mind through consumption. Not just by having too many beers or too much wine or smoking pot. But we can dull the mind by consuming too much TV or the wrong kind of TV, overeating, all kinds of things, talking too much. can also kind of dull, cloud the mind. So we'll look at that more specifically tonight, that fifth precept. But before that, I just want to remind us that we've been looking at each of these five precepts in three ways. I know it gets complicated but it's just different ways of looking at each of these precepts. Like with non-harming, the first way we can work with any of these precepts is the creative use of restraint. So with non-harming, we may set up a particular way of of creatively restraining ourselves from some activity that we're inclined to do in order to see that intention to act out in a particular way. And the example, the obvious example is, you know, we have this habit of killing mosquitoes in the spring or in the summer. And so an act of creative insight, you know, we say, okay, let's just experiment. These are just creatures doing the best they can. And uh, uh, when I kill them, I'm just expressing a kind of irritation and aversion, which is not a force I want to reinforce in my heart. So I'll creatively undertake the resolve to refrain from killing mosquitoes. And so then every time we're outside in the evening, or at dawn, and the mosquitoes flock to us, and we have many impulses to kill, we get to see that force in the mind, which is to want to destroy things that irritate us. Because it's the same force that wants us to... um, attack those people who insult us or even irritate us you know when my wife does things that irritate me you know like uh, the other night she was sipping some tea and it was too hot so she was making noise and I noticed I got irritated (laughs) and uh, I said something smart (laughs) because because being a teacher of meditation it's not appropriate for me to be irritated by someone slurping their tea so I just say something smart and sad, <laughs> instead of just saying, you know, I'm irritated, <laughs> which would be a lot more honest and direct. Um, but anyway, so I feel irritated, and then because of the habit, it feels okay to act out the irritation, even if it's in a subtle way, in, but it's still it's attacking in some way, even if it's very subtle. But if we undertake trainings in different places, like with mosquitoes, then we get to see that force in the mind that assumes that when something's irritated, it's okay to kill it. It's okay to destroy it. It's okay to get rid of it. It's okay to squash it or push it away. That's the force of aversion. And so there we are. We've made this resolve, and we get to see it because we're not going to kill it, but we still feel the intention to kill it, the impulse to kill it. So then it's just blooming in our mind, this intention to want to destroy, to get rid of the mosquito. But we're not, because we've set the intention not to kill. So that's the creative use of restraint. The purpose of it, besides you know, protecting the life of a mosquito, even more importantly, and that's, I don't think that's not important, but even more importantly than protecting the life of the mosquito, is to have insight like to learn something about the nature of our conditioning that we haven't seen before. So let's think about that way in terms of working with intoxicants. You know, it could be something as simple as you know, I'm not going to drink more than two beers or two glasses of wine or whatever, however you might set that up. Or I'm not going to drink alone. I'll drink as a social activity. Or I'm not going to drink at all. Or I'm only going to drink once a month. So there's any number of ways that we could set up the creative use of restraint in the area of, for sure just in terms of alcohol, but in any area of consumption. You know, I'm only going to participate in reading or listening to the news for 15 minutes a day or, you know, no more than 15 hours a day
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> for some of us. So we could, you know, any number of ways we could creatively practice restraint. So that's one way to work with any of the precepts, the creative use of restraint. The other is to cultivate some ideal. <coughs> so, in a way, this precept isn't, the fifth precept isn't really so much about morality. There's nothing morally wrong with having a glass of wine or a beer, it just makes acting, uh, it just makes harming more likely because the mind gets dull. when we we consume intoxicants or when we do anything that dulls the mind. It just makes it more likely we'll act out on skillful habit energy. This is from uh, Ajahn Amaro, well-known. He's actually from England, but he's, he's the abbot of a Buddhist monastery in California, Ajahn Amaro. And he wrote this wonderful book, Small Boat, Great Mountain. I was actually at the retreat where he gave these talks and then somebody... Transcribes the, transcribed the talks into a book made it into a book and here he's talking about the fifth precept he says it's interesting that when the Buddha describes the moral precepts he often doesn't actually mention the fifth one the Buddha did not always label the precept against using intoxicants as intrinsically moral so that means that sometimes when he gave talks about moral conduct or living harmoniously he didn't have five precepts, he would mention four Sometimes he did mention this one, so it's not, sometimes he did, but not always. When I say this, some people perk up and get very interested. (laughs) The point, though, is that when the mind is in a heedless state, it is much easier to fall headlong into the first four danger zones, right? Harming, stealing, sexual misconduct, and speaking falsely or speaking in a way that's harmful. So it's, uh, it's easier to fall headlong into the first four danger zones than it is when the mind is attentive, balanced, and undrugged. To continue the driving analogy, so he uses the, he, he, earlier in this chapter he talks about using the precepts, it's like without precepts it's driving without brakes. And So to continue the driving analogy, just consider the number of accidents caused by people under the influence of drink and other intoxicants including cell phone intoxication. <laughs> um, so it may be that when we wouldn't experience... So it may be that we wouldn't experience the inescapable negative karmic result that we would say when telling a deliberate lie. But the precept against using intoxicants is included in the Five because it's a linchpin for all the others. When it goes, the will starts to wobble. For myself, I'd like to encourage the understanding of the fifth precept. Quote, I undertake the precept to refrain from consuming intoxicating drink and drugs which lead to carelessness. To be a refraining from consuming the substances at all, not just refraining from intoxication. It's a favorite idea, isn't it, to think, just to have a beer now and then, or a glass of wine with dinner. That's not against the precepts, is it? Unquote. Quite honestly, I'd say that it is. To have the standard of abstinence is a great kindness to yourself and a kindness to other people by the example you set. I'm not asking people to be rigid or fanatical about it, but it can be extremely helpful for ourselves to make a clear commitment. It's like saying, Mindfulness is a precious and fragile commodity. Why endanger or weaken it? So personally, i like to encourage a strict observation observance I'm sorry observance of the precepts including that of refraining from intoxicants This is out of uh, no reason other than my love for you and for all other beings You will find it You will find it is the most helpful support to all dimensions of Buddhist practice to respect precepts in this way so again There's no right or wrong or What's right or wrong is acting out our negative conditioning. That's really what we can say without a doubt has negative consequences. When we act out greed in a way that harms us or harms others, then harms harm and suffering is set in motion. So what each of you decide to do, how you decide to work with this fifth precept, is really up to you. But just one thing to keep in mind, even though it seems very clear that some people can consume alcohol or use recreational drugs in a way that doesn't seem to be immoral, at least on the surface, one thing to keep in mind is just because you can do that doesn't mean other people can do that. And when other people see you drinking, especially if you're kind of a morally upstanding person that they respect, you know, somebody who has a meditation practice, somebody who takes spiritual life seriously, and they see you do it, even though you may have the capacity to kind of uh, restrain yourself from over-consuming, over-using, other people may not have that capacity. And by when we do it, then it's an invitation, in a sense, for others. And Thich Nhat Hanh makes this point quite a bit in all of his talking about the precepts and In general this is a an important point in Buddhism, which is that we're kind of co-responsible for each other It's not like our actions our choices exist independently from everybody else That we're all kind of participating in this world and therefore we're all responsible for how messy it is And so even though we may not be um, sort of classic alcoholics or drug addicts or people who are are addicted to various unhealthy lifestyles, unhealthy life activities, uh, there are probably many ways that we support the different negative patterns in the world. And so in a way there's no end to... Uh, this sila, this work of living more and more harmoniously or taking responsibility for all things more deeply, more sensitively and like he says in this little section I read from Ajahn Amaro's book the point isn't to become fanatical or tight because if we become fanatical or tight we're just encouraging everybody else to become fanatical or tight and then we get a world like we have So. We're not, it's not about being perfect it's just about allowing our sensitivity to develop and the more sensitive we are naturally we want to respond more sensitively so when we work with restraint in this area you know not consuming in a way that's harmful to ourselves or others just start on the level that you're actually sensitive to so notice in your own life what's harmful to yourself or others don't assume things are harmful but just start looking looking at the consequences of our our ways of consuming and this would be great sometimes when we have more time like when i'm teaching a whole course on the precepts we'll actually do an activity and feel free to do this at home if you'd like or with a friend where you might just write down you know 10 to 20 different Things you regularly consume, like places where you you like to consume news. Like for me, I put news down. I put food, you know, ways that I like food and specific kinds of food, sweets. And uh, you know, um, well, most of my entertainment consists of news. But
0: <laughs>
1: I do like movies, and I'm not saying these are negative. I'm just Just looking at what we like to consume and the different patterns of consumption. You know, it might be sex for some of us. It might be who knows what it is we we keep going to. And sex in the broadest sense, like uh, enticing fantasies or images or stories, you know, books. Um, And so we just look. At the different areas, and we look, and then we just get interested, you know, either in talking with a close friend or just reflecting on our own. Like, well, what are the intentions? What happens before any of these kinds of consuming? So, what, do, what what happens before I go to the fridge to get the beer, or before I go to the bar to have the beer? And just to be really honest, what's alive in the heart that then leads to that kind of consuming, or when I go back for the second or third? You know batch of cookies or something like that or that you know watching the next hour or third hour of TV what's alive in the heart and then look at the immediate consequence of doing that just to be really honest with ourselves and then the long-term consequence and then the effect on the greater community of that activity so we're just sort of looking at the whole sequence of causes and conditions Related to different cons- uh, consumption patterns in our life, whether it's over shopping, or what you think is over shopping, um, you know, buying more than what you might need. And this is really, uh, in my mind, what this precept, this precept, this fifth precept, is really about. It's just bringing more mindfulness to how we use consumption. And I, in just reflecting on my own life, mostly I thought about. Uh, some ways to do this and, and you can when, when you look at the different patterns of consumption you might get inspired about ways to creatively work with restraint or the other way of practicing is thinking of some ideal to cultivate like the ideal of simplicity or the ideal of, of uh, consuming in a way that supports clarity as opposed to consuming in a way that supports retreating from the world and uh, So keep these two in mind as you, as you hear these, and then I'll set aside some time at the end to talk about these together. <coughs> so again, just in looking at my own life, one of the things I've noticed when I looked at my consumption patterns is that sometimes I consume out of fear. Or if I've got some anxiety that's alive in me, it's like uh, kind of wanting to, to dull it out. And, you know, often the way I consume when I'm feeling some fear or some anxiety, ultimately it doesn't have anything much to do with that particular, what that fear is really about. But somehow on the surface I I connect it to. So, uh, you know, just like a basic anxiety of of, uh, feeling like I don't have enough. You know, might lead to, I think one of the examples I use, I'm, I'm better, you know, like, how much olive oil do I need to have on hand? You know, how many canned goods? So when something's up to how much do I need to have on hand? And what is that about? And there's just a like basic fear that, of, you know, on the surface, it's a basic fear of, you know, missing out on a good deal. You know, don't, but if I look more closely, it's a, it's a more subtle and deeper kind of anxiety of not having enough or being caught without, you know, being vulnerable to, to sort of, uh, it's like a, it's an unresolved, which I, I think probably we all have, an unresolved fear of life or death or survival. But there it is manifesting and sort of having more canned goods around than we need or more bottles of olive oil than we need. Or how many socks do I actually need to kind of get through the week before, you know, I wash them again? And so we can look at that, like how much security is enough? How many friends do we need to cultivate? I mean, some, some of us, it's like we, we literally are addicted to maintaining friendships. Because there's, in, unconscious, I mean this is mostly unconscious, the whole point is to make it conscious. We're afraid of being left alone, of not having friends. So we actually end up not having too many friends because we've spread ourselves too thin. And we're not really connecting with the friends that we have. It's like juggling you know, all these people in our lives, trying to maintain some kind of intimacy or connection, which is impossible. So that we use consumption to avoid feeling something that we can't avoid feeling ultimately, which is we're basically insecure, we're basically vulnerable. That's just how it is. That's what being alive means. And trying to avoid that truth by consuming is like really pointless and uh, creates a lot of problems, like the environment being in the way... The the situation we're in now is a lot, I think, because of this. This overconsumption as a way of dealing with this basic insecurity. Now, so the the negative, I mean, the, yeah, the negative, creatively working with restraint, you know, I could set up a a system where, you know, I'm not going to have more than two months of food in my cupboards (laughs) or something like that. But, A positive, putting it in a positive way, it could be like practicing contentment or cultivating a feeling of safety in a world where the body is vulnerable. So one of the advantages to, to a regular meditation practice is we start to touch a kind, in moments at least, in our sitting practice we start to touch a kind of peacefulness, calm, tranquility, and even joy, bliss, that has nothing to do with how much olive oil we have in the cupboard, or how much money we have in the bank account, or how many friends we have. It's an inner happiness or an inner peace. And it's a that kind of the contentment that comes from touching that inner peace really helps to diffuse the basic fear of survival. It's not enlightenment. I'm not saying this is sort of an ultimate resolution to the predicament of being a human being, that it really helps to touch this uh, inner peace, which this is something that is available to all of us. You don't have to be a Buddha to touch the inner peace that comes from just uh, training the mind to be fully in the present with the breath. And then of course It's not just in your sits. You can have it throughout the day, just walking from your car to your office, or just taking a walk through the woods, or just sipping a cup of tea, as long as you're not bothering me (laughs) with your slurping. But we can have that, that samadhi, that inner peace. We can touch that all the time. But we have to train the mind to see that or to find that, to know where it is, to know where to look for it. And this is a positive way of dealing with this kind of habit of over-consuming. Another habit that I detected in my own patterns of consumption is the habit of of consuming. It's like a, a basic part of any addictive pattern where the mind gets really fixated, focused on the rush of pleasantness in the activity and this is true you know we can think of this being true in so many things like just you know wanting some chocolate in the afternoon when we're feeling a little low or masturbation is another place where we really the mind gets really focused on that particular rush or overeating of course or just certain tastes that we want in our food or caffeine and certainly drink and drugs are in this area or any kind of rush, like uh, even for me with news, the rush for me it's the rush of self-righteousness, you know, like that kind of rush of like the stupid world or this stupid or this, you know. To me, it's like uh, it's like a little juice there in feeling that, and so we want to look at that, and we have to be honest that there is some pleasantness in that rush or whatever we're getting from that consumption, but we want to reflect on how temporary it is, how incredibly short it is. In the great scheme of things, it's so short. I mean, no matter what, you I mean even if you imagine the most pleasant, pleasant kind of you can have, how long does it last? And and then we can reflect back, well how many times have we already had this? And has the satisfaction been meaningful that we've gotten from it like how many times have I had that rush you know of seeing something interesting in the news you know when you see the headline and you kind of go oh that's interesting and then you know you have the mind has two or three minutes of losing itself in that reading in that sort of whatever it does when it reads and, and kind of digests and reacts to the story And then it's over and then we're hungry for more so when we really pay attention to the whole pattern we see the initial rush we see a little bit of that that wave of pleasantness and then we feel hungry we have to notice this part of the pattern too and this is true with you know any kind of binging or or with any kind of consumption shopping you know and then there's the flush of having all the new clothes and then inevitably, in a week or whatever, it's like they're old, or they have to be washed. I know some people who, when they get their hair cut, you know, they don't want to wash their hair for a while because it uh, it looks just so nice when the person who knows what they're doing does it just right. And then, and then you know, it's like eventually it just becomes ordinary again. We're back to our ordinary self look. And uh, then we're kind of uh, looking forward to the next whatever. So that's another with another pattern that I've noticed, um, that addiction. And so the key to here is to... Uh, there's two I mean one thing is just to practice different forms of restraint like when we know that we're caught in this pattern just to practice restraint but the other is to practice mindfulness of the whole pattern right because a lot of times in these especially in the more addictive patterns that we get stuck in doesn't matter how resolved we are we end up doing it anyway because the resolve works as long as we're mindful of a resolve but as soon as there's a little break we're at the vending machine getting our Snicker bar or whatever, getting our afternoon chocolate. Like I used to, you know, like no chocolate in the house. And, then, and I, it was amazing how I could justify driving whatever number of miles just to get chocolate. <laughs> Even though I was really busy. Because I didn't, you know, I was like, I had this resolve not to have chocolate in my house. So I was really good when I was at the store not to buy it. You know, and then, but sure enough, every afternoon. <laughs> Where are my keys? <laughs> so uh, then, so one, one of the creative things or one of the positive things we can do is say, okay, my, uh, what I'll do is I'll practice being mindful of the whole thing, being really deeply honest about the whole pattern. So not just focusing on the bliss of that two minutes of joy, when I'm consuming, or not. Actually, it's more fun to get the chocolate than to actually consume the chocolate. Maybe the first few moments of tasting it is good, but the real joy is right before you're about to eat it. And, and it's interesting when you look carefully, when you really follow the whole pattern with mindfulness, you realize the joy of consumption for for all, for many of these patterns is the real joy is when the craving stops. It's. The stopping of the craving that's pleasant it's not the actual taste of the chocolate you know which is a little bitter and dry you know there's sort of an astrin- astrinsic quality to chocolate and but the non craving of it is feels good so as soon as we've got it in our mouth at least for a while we're not craving it and that's a release it's probably true with so many of our addictive patterns it's the not craving of it that feels so good as opposed to the actual activity of it. I really know, I don't drink anymore, but, um, you know, when I was younger, in college I drank, and I really noticed that when I really paid attention, you know, even really good things I didn't like. I mean, if you're really sensitive, alcohol is not pleasant. I mean, there some of the tastes in the alcohol, of course, is pleasant. But the alcohol itself, if you, at least for me, if you really focus in on the experience of alcohol in your mouth in your body it's not pleasant it's a poison and the body knows it knows it's a poison on some level and you really feel it now that I'm not saying wine actually part of the wine tastes good but the alcohol part of the wine doesn't taste good and uh, so you can really notice that that uh, the whole experience all the way through from the really the joy that comes with the release of no more craving and then maybe some pleasantness involved in the consumption of it and then just keep following it all the way through and this will really help to undermine some of these patterns another way that I notice consuming uh, consumption patterns is just as a way of keeping busy it's like an addiction to just activity itself and just like what's what's the next thing you know it's like uh, when an eye Almost since the time we got together as partners, um, have always thought about a place in the country. And we've been looking for a place in the country now. but well, we've been together since '91, so whatever that is, a long time. <laughs> we've been, you know, periodically getting serious about buying a place in the country, and uh, and looking and shopping and then letting it go and being realistic and letting go and then getting interested. And it's like, it basically, whenever there's, when we're not totally consumed with our lives, then it sort of leaks, the sort of of space, you know, gets filled up with some activity. Or planning the next (coughs) retreat, you know, next meditation retreat, or the next this or that. And so we can look at our consumption patterns and really see what that's about. You know, is it a fear of simplicity? A fear of just not needing to fill up space or having space that isn't being filled up having quiet time you know a lot of us we justify this like about these self-improvement projects exercise regimen, learning regimens you know, I'm going to read this book, I'm going to study this, I'm going to learn a foreign language I'm going to travel even meditation can become this it can become another thing we do because we're afraid of non-activity we're afraid of just being and it's probably the most ironic thing in the world that we we become obsessive about Buddhist meditation practice which we can there are people who I mean all of us to some degree probably we become a little bit obsessed about our spiritual practice which is exactly the opposite direction the whole point of an authentic practice is to be able to abide in the body and mind, in the present moment uh, with equanimity so that we're not afraid of activity but we're not in need of being active so this this is what allows us to be compassionate or to be skillful is that we're not addicted to activity so if we're active it's because being active is the appropriate response in the moment. But if there's nothing that needs to be done, then the whole system comes back to stillness. I remember somebody once described the practice, this is a, a Buddhist monk, where he, he said something like, I sit in the temple all day, but whenever anybody asks me to do something, I do it. But if nobody asks me to do anything, I just sit. I just practice. And that's kind of a nice thing. Now if you have kids, you're being asked to do things all the time and so then your practice is to naturally and as effortlessly as you can train yourself to to effortlessly respond to the situation of being a parent but when your kids leave from home and even though for 22 or 8 years you've been continuously responding to their needs Freely, effortlessly, with love, out of love, out of compassion. Then when they're gone, you're completely content not to respond. You don't have to fill your life up with activity just because you've done it for 28 years. Because you haven't been doing that activity compulsively, you've been moment by moment responding to what needs to be done. Picking up this because it needs to be picked up. Driving the kids over here because they need to be driven over here. And then when there isn't anything to do, The body and mind is content to just be, to just be, and to just be. And then, so that's a practice, so that we're not just doing because we think we should do, but because somehow we're connected to the present moment and we're being invited to do something. It's the appropriate, natural thing to do. But as soon as there isn't anything to do, the system, the body-mind system, is content with non-activity just having a quiet evening or just, you know, taking a walk around the block or something that, you know, from another point of view would seem like a waste of time, watching the birds eat the bird seed, which I try to do every day. But I notice, see, sometimes when I'm doing that, I'm avoiding doing what the world is asking me to do in that moment. And sometimes when I'm doing what the world is asking to do, I'm doing it. Not because the world is asking me to do it, but because I'm addicted. So we have to to experiment last... uh, Maybe I'll just end with this point. Last week when we were talking about speech, the third way of practicing any of these precepts is to discover an effortless way of expressing the precept. So what would be the effortless way of practicing right speech? And I, and I talked about last week that first we prepare ourselves for being able to be fully assertive. So we practice being assertive to the nth degree. And we also have to practice being receptive, not speaking to the nth degree. And when we're really comfortable being silent and we're really comfortable speaking up then and only then can we practice this effortless, right speech where we say what needs to be said. And when nothing needs to be said, we don't say anything. And it's the same with this kind of consumption. When something needs to be consumed in order to take care of ourselves or take care of somebody else, we consume it. When we need a shirt, we go buy a shirt. But if we don't need a shirt, we're very content not to buy a shirt. When we need to feed the body to take care of the body, we feed it. When we don't need to feed the body, we don't feed it. But to do that, we have to uproot any fear of consumption, and we have to uproot any addiction to consumption, any attachment to consumption, so that we're consuming uh, uh, from a place of taking care of all things, taking care of ourselves and taking care of others, not compulsively. So I'll leave it here, and we'll uh, spend at least one more week working, looking at this fifth precept, So for homework this week, just to find ways to identify our various patterns of consumption, things that we tend to go back to in terms of what we consume, and really looking, like break it down in terms of cause and effect. What is the intention before we go towards that activity of consumption? What's going on while we're consuming? What's the pleasantness? What's the unpleasantness? What do we feel like after? And what is it set in motion in our own heart and, and other people around us? What are we kind of reinforcing with this activity? It would be nice to hear from people now. We have about 12 minutes. If you have any thoughts about this, examples from your own life, you'd like to share any questions about the talk that you'd like to bring up. Mm-hmm. Please say your name. I'm
0: Dave, and uh, I just was wondering what you had said about, uh, you know, how sometimes even like other things that
1: it can be destructive or something. Um what about like in an instance where you're trying to like reprogram your mind to get out of the destructive pattern and I'll say, Oh, I'll sit down and meditate right now. Is that the same? Yeah that's a good question. I I think uh one of the patterns I've noticed and it seems pretty universal <coughs> is uh, one teacher described it as uh attached detach, attach, detach. You can kind of think of climbing a ladder. And in order to sort of take a step, we need to hold on. And then once we, we reach, then we take, and then we let go. And it's a, sort of the same with different uh, habit energies. In order to, so we're addicted or attached to a particular pattern. So what we do is we establish a different habit. Like sitting meditation, then we get attached to it. But it allows us to let go of this. Or we go out drinking a lot, so we create a habit of showing up for the twelve step group, and we really get attached. And if you know, a lot of the twelve step programs are based on creating an attachment, a dependency on the group. And, but that allows us to let go of that, you know. And then maybe a, a more gross way of being attached to the group becomes a more refined way. So we let go of the gross attachment, like the, the kind of dependency on a particular person being there at the group, you know. And then we realize it's not about one person, you know, it's about this internal process. And the, and the group just sort of reminds me of this internal process. And that's a more subtle kind of relationship to the whole program. And then, then maybe there are many other more subtle layers to where you're not even needing Sort of any outward expression of the 12 step program. It's just part of who you are. But I don't know. I mean, I I don't want to suggest that there's a particular way that it happens or unfolds. For each person, it's probably different. Other thoughts people have? Mm -hmm. Gabe. Uh, What you were talking about with
0: needing to fill space um, really reminded me of something that I've been.
1: Uh, thinking about it and practicing just the last couple of days. I just made this conscious um, experiment to see whether or not I could get all my responsibilities done without worrying about them or even mm-hmm. without maybe
0: even practicing without even leaving the present moment for a thought about them.
1: Yeah. And so I'm currently still practicing that.
0: <laughs> but, I <have> the,
1: <laughs> but I have the idea that maybe it is possible. And that's... Because that's the thought that comes up, well, like, when you have an empty space, why not fill it with planning for this other thing? Maybe that actually
0: helps, but I have the idea that it doesn't.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, I appreciate you sharing that, Gabe. And that's that third way of working with the precepts. So we creatively, we, we want to, sometimes it's appropriate to creatively work with restraint. Sometimes it's to... To strategically intentionally cultivate some ideal and sometimes it's like exactly I think you described it so well that effortless natural expression of the precepts so it's just about like if I'm fully in the present moment free of greed free of aversion will these precepts be naturally expressed will I naturally avoid clouding the mind will I naturally avoid lying will I naturally avoid sexual misconduct lying cheating stealing harming and that's like the ultimate experiment to trust awareness being fully present and this is like fully present with wisdom fully present with a sensitive heart what comes out of that and that that's just another way to practice yeah it sounded great what you said other thoughts people have
0: Well, my practice has been um, sometimes in relation to my profession, journalism, and um, I've noticed I've noticed um, a love of complexity, and that the mind loves complexity and uh, seeks out complexity, and um, that I run into a paradox in my profession in that um, sometimes you imagine <coughs> the journalistic process is a search for truth, um, but. If what you're really going for is complexity, you're not going to get to the truth. And so you can be in interviews, and a journalistic habit is to ask questions. And sometimes you can just be so addicted to asking questions, you know, you're just going to the, you're just making connection after connection after (coughs) connection, and you're really loving that kind of swinging from point to point to point all over the map. And you get to a point of saying, well, gee, I'm really enjoying this interview in in a way But I'm avoiding stopping and figuring out where the truth is.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) but in my case, it's it's led to, um, you know, a really troubled relationship to my profession because it's it's actually caused me to stop asking questions so much. I I I don't write stories. I don't do interviews. And I've made I've made an effort to actually change my relationship to the profession such that I can go weeks or months without writing stories.
1: That's got to be scary.
0: Well, it is. <laughs> yeah. And it requires a really thoroughgoing reorganization of my life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But and, and then weeks and months will go by and I'll think, well, oh, gosh, I'm a journalist and I'm not writing stories. But then I check again and I think, well, it actually feels right not to be asking questions right now. It feels, it feels right to just be observing yeah. and letting things go the other way for a while. And then if I get the hankering to, to start asking more questions, or write stories, then I will, and then I'm into that third part Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Then it will be more natural as opposed to compulsive.
0: Right. Then I'll feel like I'm checking in. Okay. Yeah, it feels right to be asking questions now and be writing again.
1: And I think this is such an important point that when we take on one of these trainings, like the creative use of restraint, in your case, Mm -hmm. um, it's not forever. It's Mm -hmm. just a learning process. So it may help, like in Doug's case, to uproot any sort of subtle compulsion to complexity and these attachments these compulsions can be very subtle like even in our meditation practice we can be attached uh to subtlety like wanting wanting to experience the body in more and more subtle ways the breath in more and more subtle ways and it actually keeps us from having insight into the nature of the mind because we're sort of And there's this great story Doug knows, of course, about the Buddha where he held up a handful of leaves. He's in a forest, you know, with thousands of trees and hundreds of thousands of leaves. And he says, what's more, the leaves in the forest or the leaves in my hand? And the practitioners there with the Buddha said, well, of course, there's more leaves in the forest than in your hand. And the Buddha says, "Just, just so. The number of leaves in the forest, that represents how much I understand, how much I know. But I'm only teaching a, a little, a few things. Because this is all you need to know. And there are other times where the Buddha and other teachers have talked about the world is infinitely complex and and interesting and infinitely fascinating for humans. We are, and there's no end. The world is truly fascinating. You know, just, just go look at bugs someday. They're just incredibly fascinating. Like, how they live their lives and just... It's amazing, or I was, like I said today, I was just watching the birds. It's just amazing to watch birds and how they're kind of flirting with each other now, and just the, all the different patterns. It's just, when you start paying attention, everything is fascinating. But that doesn't mean, like Doug says, it leads to the truth. So we can be addicted to the sort of complexity and the fascination of all things. I mean, just getting to know our friends, it's like we can never really know our partners. And they're incredibly fascinating. If we just get beyond what we think we know about them and really look at them directly it's like oh my god you know who or what is this (laughs) but that's not necessarily going to lead to anywhere it just leads to like there's another there's always another layer and then we just all we're doing is feeding this hunger that as if that goes somewhere knowing more about the world does it go somewhere and we miss learning about the nature of the heart or the mind so uh this is a this is a subtle kind of addiction that you were pointing to, I think. But uh, we'll leave it there. But we'll pick up the conversation. With, I'll set aside more time next uh, time to, for our discussion. So please bring back any anything you learn about looking at your consumption patterns and that whole the whole part of it from the beginning to the end. It would be nice for people to share that with the group. But let's take a few seconds and let go of the words and take a couple breaths together just appreciate being here and it can be a cause for joy to remember to use our imagination and to remember all the women and men through the centuries that have cultivated this practice of awareness of mindfulness as best they can passed it on, shared it with others and generation after generation it eventually ended up here in this building at this time we can be grateful, it's kind of an amazing thing that in our busy lives with all these distractions that human beings have been interested in cultivating this simple awareness quieting the mind seeing things as they are and we can be um, uh, dedicated to this aspiration to do the best we can in our lives to cultivate mindfulness as a way of taking care of ourselves deeply, and also as a way of taking care of all beings. So this is our great contribution to our well being and to the well being of everyone. So may we all be a cause for peace, for wisdom and compassion. May we all live with ease, free from suffering. Thanks for coming, everyone. Always nice to be here together. And I have a couple of announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.